Hi, I'm Reagan, and thanks for listening to my dad's podcast, Lasting Learning. Hey, before we jump into this episode, I've got to ask, have you signed up for the free standards-based grading webinar taking place on September 20th, 2023 at 7 p.m. Eastern time? This 90-minute webinar is perfect for those of you just wanting to get a little bit more information about what standards-based grading is. Whether you're in a school that's already adopted SBG and just need to tweak it, or if you are in a school or district that is traditional, ABCs, 100-point scales, and you're looking at taking things to the next level, and you want to make sure that you know what your kids know, sign up for this 90-minute webinar completely free, no strings attached. Just click the link in the show notes, follow me on Facebook and click the event, sign up, bring some friends, bring some family, bring some colleagues, bring some popcorn and your favorite drink. We'll see you there. Hi, and welcome back to Lasting Learning. This is Dave Schmidt, and uh, this episode's gonna be a little bit different. During the summer months of 2023, I'm offering some free professional learning to you. This summer, I'm going to be releasing special episodes. It's basically going to be an audio book. I'm going to read to you my book, Bold Humility. Bold Humility was first published five years ago. And as a result of that five-year anniversary, I decided to make it available to you, my listeners, this summer. Now, these recordings are not going to be evergreen. They're not going to be out there forever. They are only going to be out for a limited time. So make sure you listen. Make sure you share. Make sure you're willing to grow. Here we go. Bold humility. Chapter three, life on the catwalk. My Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook feeds are filled with pictures of my kids. To know me is to know my kids. I mean it. My kids are just like me. They're good-looking, funny, smart, and have tremendous charisma. (laughs) I'm joking. Kind of. As each of my children grow up, I find myself increasingly being hit over the head with reflections of who I am. Lucky for each of them, they have not acquired my physical appearance yet. But my mannerisms, habits, and words are popping out of them with greater regularity. Who I am is who they're becoming. They learn more from watching me than they do from listening to my rants and raves. They mimic me because I'm the closest thing to a successful adult that they see in their world. I see it when they play. I hear it when they speak. Sometimes it makes me smile with pride, and sometimes it makes me cringe in humility. As a dad, my challenge to myself is to try and be the person I want my boys to be, and to act like the man I want my daughter to marry. That's a large burden to carry, but it's one that, whether I accept it or not, will be my reality. This is the reason I date my daughter. I want to model for her what to expect from a gentleman. This is the reason I say please and thank you to my sons. It's the reason I rise early in the morning and work out daily. It's the reason I read in front of them and not in a secluded corner. I know I'm a model for their present and future behavior, and it's the perfect accountability to make me better each day. At work, I have amazing principals, teachers, secretaries, custodians, and students. Every single one of the people I work with makes my life better, and I'm so grateful. These are not just words being written. They're genuine words of appreciation and gratitude. I know that my life has been impacted by the people I work with because they're special, unique, and driven. As a leader, I know my responsibility is not just to help craft and draft a mission statement, write policy, and sign checks. Every single day, I work with other adults who are watching my every move, even when I don't notice it. They watch to see if there are signs of discouragement or signs of hope. They watch to see if I offer a hug to a struggling student or walk right by. 
They watch to see if I'll extend grace to a teacher who overslept or if I'll correct it with consequences. My job is to model to the adults what I expect the adults to display to the children in their care. If I say that it's essential that every child walks into a room knowing they are safe and loved, I must make the time to ensure that every staff member feels the same way. If I expect every teacher to articulate goals and objectives to their students, I must take the time daily to do the same for my teachers. If I expect every expectation to be explicitly taught, I must remember that even to adults sometimes, what we should know by now is not what we do know by now. In my last year as a building principal, I had the following goals for myself. Pass out at least 50 hugs a day, visit at least 30 classrooms a week, make at least 100 parent phone calls a month, smile at every person I pass in the hall, get out from behind my desk each time I have a conversation in my office, start every workday with a full staff huddle before the kids arrive, and display hope and optimism in each conversation I have. Those were my goals because I expected my teachers to get to know their students, to provide love and guidance, to be explicit in their expectations, and to remember that life, the life-changing business is a good business. I wanted my teachers to get out from behind their desks, to articulate their vision, and to teach with kindness. I make mistakes, and so do you. As a leader, no job or responsibility is beneath me. My job is to dress up in costumes, to make a caricature of, my, of myself daily, to pick up trash, to fill in for absent teachers, to serve others, and lead by example. My example will say more than my words ever will. And this is the personal challenge of mine that will help teachers change the lives of kids. Leaders, yes, you have to balance budgets, do evaluations, su supervise bus duty, deal with disgruntled parents, but you know what? So do your teachers. If you want your teachers to lead the next generation with love and inspiration, in spite of the stress and burdens that surround them, then lead your teachers the same way. Teachers, the same wisdom goes for you. You must act the way you want your students to act. You must demonstrate what you expect, model what you want. Yes, I know you're not a student. I know the same rules should not apply to you as they do to your students. Yes, I know you can vote, you can drink, smoke, and drive. I know you're old enough to make your own decisions and live your own life. But one of the decisions that you made was to accept your part in shaping the lives of kids who are watching your every move. When you chose to enter into this most noble of professions, the bar was raised. You chose this career, and along with it, the responsibility that comes with it. Your students notice when you roll your eyes at that kid who shows up late. They hear the complaining spilling out of the teacher's lounge. They recognize your car on the street and see you rolling through that stop sign in town. Right or wrong, they're watching. This pressure can get intense, but don't let it get the best of you. Our students also need to see us make mistakes, apologize for them, and recover. They need to see that we're human and need to see what responsible adults do when they make mistakes. This does not, however, give us the right to act however we want or to put ourselves on a pedestal in front of our students. As educators, I think that we often get it wrong. In our attempts to help prepare our students for adulthood, we make the claim that we're trying to teach our students what the quote-unquote real world looks like, forgetting that our students are living in a world that is very real today. We use this claim to give ourselves an excuse to treat our students in the way that some of us have been treated by employers in the past, erroneously thinking that just because there are bad bosses in the world, we have to equip our students to deal with them someday. We forget that our job is to empower students to see the world for what it could be instead of for what it has been. Because of this, schools often become the breeding ground for oxymoronic behavior. If you're guilty of any of the following, feel free to humble yourself and call yourself an oxymoron. Then have the boldness to change. Focus on priority over preference. For example, have you ever been sitting around the dinner table with your family and noticed that you have an incoming call or text from your boss? Instead of answering it, you make the statement, 
Doesn't he realize I work all day for him? This is my time to be with my family. You flip the phone upside down and continue to enjoy quality time at home. The next day, you go to your classroom, teach all day, and then assign homework for students to complete that evening. After they've been sitting through seven hours of content, social skill building, and potentially two more hours of physical activity. You hear their grumbles about their busy schedules as you assign it, but re you reply with, it should take less, it, it should take less than the time it would have taken you to answer the call the night before, just to get it done. You wouldn't take a couple of minutes out of your time the night before to, to do work for your boss, but you expect kids to do it for you? It's always fascinating to me that some teachers are okay with a kid missing family time to do schoolwork, yet get upset when a kid misses school to do family time. You know what I'm talking about. You assign that big project or test, you provide students with weeks of advance notice, and you still get that student that comes to you the day before it's due with a list of excuses about why he needs an extension. You explain the need to be organized and use time at home wisely to get schoolwork done, and you deny the request. The following month, a different child approaches and explains that he's hoping to go on vacation for a week and he needs his schoolwork to complete while gone. Knowing how inconvenient this is to you, you greet this student with the same size and lectures as the student with the list of excuses the month before. I know kids should be in school. I know teachers are facilitators of learning activities and provide the best path for students to learn academic content. This does not dismiss the irony of the situation, though. We complain that parents are not involved in the lives of their kids when we see their kids as students but we complain when they step in to become memory makers. We cannot say hands-on relevant learning opportunities matter and then get frustrated when a parent decides to step up and create an experience for the child. We cannot get frustrated at our school or district when the funds are not available for more field trips and then blame a parent for designing their own. We cannot take days out of our curriculum to show movies, to take field trips to amusement parks, to have field days and pep rallies and then tell a parent that their idea for enrichment has less value than ours. Teachers and leaders, we cannot get away with a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do attitude. Followers will always do what we do. Always. When I was a classroom teacher, I was as guilty of this as anyone. I was unbending, inflexible, and rigid. I expected my students to study to learn and to do it on their own time. It wasn't until a few years ago when I was presenting to a group of strangers that I made a statement that hit me across the face and made me realize that I was the same hypocrite that I was complaining about. I had just finished a discussion about standards-based grading and the importance of timely feedback. As always, at the end of my presentation, I allowed the audience to ask questions to refine their thinking. I don't remember the exact questions that were asked, but I know they dealt with the relevance of testing, when to give them, if they should be given, and how much value they should have. The line of questions led me to make the following statements. How do you know when students are ready for a test? If you know they're ready, why do you need to test them? If you don't know that they're ready, is it fair to test them? Furthermore, if a student is not ready, who's responsible for making them ready? If a student can learn it all on his own, what's the purpose of a teacher? If a student has to study for a test, is a teacher even needed? Yeah, I was on a roll. <laughs> Throughout this series of questions and answers related to a presentation I'd given dozens of times, I was beginning to articulate and refine a belief that I'd never really explicitly stated before. Through this exchange, one message was emerging. Teachers matter more. Teachers matter more than programs, processes, or procedures. Teachers must embrace that they're responsible for student learning. We cannot say that student learning requires a textbook, more technology, or even a student's ability to study. Sure, these may all make the job easier, but teachers matter more. As a principal, my job was not to be on the hunt for the next best curriculum enhancement, program, or gimmick, but instead to ensure that my teachers recognize the tremendous power that they have in determining the destinies of their students.
We speak to our students about relevance, working hard to make connections from our content to their future. But the reality is, kids are already working to make associations. They're studying us as, as people as much, if not more, than they're studying the content we're presenting them. If schools are supposed to be microcosms of society, it's our obligation to make sure the processes and practices we put into place represent the hope we have for the future. I hope to play a part in helping to create people who value people. I hope to create people who understand that time is a gift. I hope to create people who are smart, kind, and loving. I hope to create people who are strong, independent, and decisive. I hope to create people who are innovative and creative. I hope to create people who are compassionate, honest, focused, cheerful, curious, diplomatic, flexible, bold, and humble. If you watch any of the superhero movies that are popular today, you'll notice that the villain is often the smartest character. Simply giving students content knowledge is a stepping stone, but creating good people with the knowledge to collaborate and make decisions is what we need in order to help create heroes. To do this, I believe we must address a few practices that may seem trivial to us, but actually say a whole lot to our kids. Home is a time to reflect and plan for us and for them. Earlier, I mentioned my favorite interview question to ask when hiring a staff member. How do you know if it's been a good day or a bad day? The goal of this question is to help me and my committee determine how reflective a candidate is. The ability to accurately reflect is often what separates mediocre from excellent. Reflection is what leads to growth and what allows us to improve. Many of us have heard of Bloom's taxonomy where we analyze the depth of learning. Designed by Benjamin Bloom more than 50 years ago, this framework articulates that the creation of new or original work is the epitome of high order thinking. I don't disagree. But in the Schmidt revised edition, I would argue that reflection is a level above. It's great to be able to evaluate the creation of someone else. It's great to be able to use your knowledge to create something original. That's even better. But it's even richer when you can create something that you think is amazing and then evaluate it yourself, then make it even better. This is what reflection is all about. And it's a skill we could all benefit from practicing more regularly. As a runner, I understand the need for off days. These are the days when I simply rest my muscles and my joints so that they can regenerate and actually come back stronger. One of the leading causes of injury for athletes stems from overuse, as we don't give our bodies the time needed to really grow and develop, so we break down. As a matter of fact, before I, ran, before I run a marathon, I'll take 10 days off from any running at all. The same strategy is needed with our mental muscles. We need time to grow. We need downtime where our minds are able to reflect on the hard work of the day so that we can come back stronger the next day. For some, this means taking time to be with family. Some binge watch TV shows. I like to spend time alone on the beach. Whatever your method of taking downtime, we all need it. It's needed for our students as well. It's needed every day. It's needed every year. It's needed with frequency. Overworking, although it may sound like a way to be more productive, often leads to more harm than good. Imagine what would happen if the two weeks before the big state test this spring, you told your students not to study, not to work on school at home, but just to relax. It goes against what we feel like we should be doing, but it may be just the game changer your kids need. Now, I'm not going to get on my soapbox and preach against homework. That's been done already, but I will add this one sentence for you to reflect on. The teacher who assigns homework simply to promote a strong worth ethic should have a strong enough work ethic to find another way. Discussing the relevance of assigned work, both classwork and homework, is a personal passion of mine, but it's not the hill for me to die on now. What I will advocate for is for us to make sure we're affording our students the time to not just practice their content knowledge, 
but their people skills as well. Give them time to play, no matter their age. Give them time to socialize, cooperate, and engage. As a father, I know my children will benefit more from one-on-one time with me at the dinner table than they will from filling out another set of flashcards in their bedroom to prepare for a test filled with information they'll forget in a week. As a leader, I know my teachers will come back to work tomorrow stronger and more mentally sound, ready to successfully handle the turmoil involved in the day-to-day of teaching if they're given the chance to breathe and relax at home this evening. Barring an emergency, I do my best not to send emails after 5 p.m. I'd rather my teachers have the chance to eat dinner with their families than feel the need to check their phone or computer at night, checking checking for answers to questions from me that can probably wait until the morning. The truth of the matter is that we all want to please our bosses. Even in those moments when we get that text or email at home, we spend a minute debating whether or not we should reply. If you're like me, maybe even spend a few seconds every couple of minutes just looking for notifications on your phone for incoming messages. It's constant. This distraction is just enough to help you disengage from your quiet downtime and get you back into burning mental energy. I'll be honest, I'm not as good at this practice as I hope others are. My phone is practically glued to my hand as I anticipate an urgent message from someone at almost all hours of the day. But this this does not mean I have to perpetuate this cycle to those who report to me. If I get an email from a teacher or a principal after hours, unless it's an absolute emergency, odds are I will not respond until the following day. I can almost guarantee that I'll read the message within minutes of receiving it, but I will not reply. This isn't because I'm trying to be rude, but because I'm trying to model the expectation. I'll find that teacher or principal first thing the next morning and reply in person, explaining my desire for them to disconnect while at home. I don't want anyone to feel the need to sit and wait in anticipation for an online dialogue with me. I'm not more important than anyone in anyone's family. Don't ever meet to meet. Many school systems across the country have mandatory seat time requirements for students. I understand the intent behind these policies. We know students as a whole perform better when they're sitting in a classroom receiving instruction from a qualified, certified educational professional. Why is this a requirement though? Is it because some students feel that their class doesn't add value, so showing up isn't needed? Is it because some students were showing success without attending class? If this is the case, there may be other issues to discuss. Is it because some students were struggling in class, stopped showing up, and we felt the need to punish the student who didn't show success by giving another form of condemning feedback? The truth of the matter is, if a student knows he or she will be engaged at a higher level and understand that real, lasting, enduring knowledge will come from attending class regularly, Whether there's a seat time requirement or not, the vast majority will choose to show up. Sure, there'll be some that will choose to disengage, but those are the outliers and should not drive the norm. What if at your school, you were the best teacher around? I mean, the data proved it, your observations proved it, and your students knew it. You taught standing on your head, students signed up in droves to be in your class, and yet at the end of the year, you were given an evaluation score that showed you were an ineffective teacher because you failed to show up for required staff meetings. It doesn't matter that at each staff meeting, there was simply a review of the calendar that you had already had access to online, along with the principal reading PowerPoint slides to you that you could have simply shared electronically. It doesn't matter that the meetings were held after school and you were a coach for an athletic team and you just couldn't be there. Your evaluation rubric indicated that your attendance was a requirement and there was no way around it, regardless of the lack of relevance or need. The meetings were a waste of time and everyone knew it. Most of us would probably change a policy like this, and rightly so. If it's not good for you as an adult, it's probably not good for them as a student. Keep it private. What if that same evaluation that you received showing where you were deficient was made public for the world to see? I know because of privacy laws, we're not allowed to share private personnel issues. 
nor are we supposed to share student grade information, but some still do. In an attempt to make an example of students, we put students and their work on display for others to see. Sometimes we do it to highlight success, and sometimes it's to condemn failure. Maybe you aren't as blatant as to explicitly shame a, a student publicly, but do you have a clip chart and ask students to take a walk of shame to the front of the room and change it when they make a poor decision? Do you group kids in homogeneous groups where quote-unquote smart kids and quote-unquote slow kids work with like peers, obvious to everyone? Do you create homogeneous classes like intervention and advanced based upon labels earned in previous years? Do you have a silent lunch table for students who are being separated from their peers due to social skill struggles? Do you put exemplary work on display while others have their work returned? The messages we send to kids are not always explicit, but they are always received. What would happen if at your next staff meeting, all teachers were split into groups based on their IQ scores? What would happen if at your next staff meeting, teachers who were playing on their phones, having sidebar conversations, or arrived late were asked to walk to the front of the room and move their clips? What if at your staff Christmas party, several teachers were told not to attend due to poor performance and were asked to sit at a table and watch the party from afar because during the school year, they had a few social struggles? If we treated adults the way that we sometimes treat students, we would be appalled. We try to frame some of these decisions as holding students accountable, or we try to justify our actions because the good kids need to see that we have a high standard. But would any excuse be a good excuse to treat adults like this? Sure, there may be a few sadistic staff members out there that relish in seeing their peers finally called out, but I can guarantee having practices in place like this will not enhance the workplace culture. It'll create a culture of compliance, not collaboration. We'll see fear and not value. We need to work to elevate everyone, adults, staff, and ourselves. Our goal should always be to repair, renew, and recharge. Never defeat, diminish, or disparage. Don't let others make a fool of you. Do it yourself. I spent the bulk of my career in middle schools, and I've learned that working with middle schoolers is really not that different from working with kindergarten students or high school freshmen. If you don't love them, they will eat you up and spit you out. For those of you who have never worked in a middle school before, let me tell you what middle school students are really like. They're weird. They're bizarre. They crave attention and individuality. They want to be accepted, yet they want to be original. They're loud, extroverted characters of, caricatures of children of all ages. Kids of all ages from 0 to 100 crave relationships. We want to be with and around people who are real, people who are honest, genuine, and passionate. I guarantee most of us would be taken aback if we learned that our best friend went on a blind date last night and came home engaged. We would argue that the new couple should take some time to get to know each other because a first date is normally a place where individuals are reserved and guarded, only sharing select pieces of their full identity. We know that it's important to push through the facade and get to know the real person before making such a big commitment. As educators, we're asking students to be engaged in our work, to be committed to us and to trust us with their futures. Yet often we do this without really letting them know who we are. As teachers who have a desire to be relatable and to have students who can identify with us, it's our responsibility to be willing to make a fool of ourselves just as much as the students do. We can't preach to students the importance of taking a stand, the power of individuality, exerting platitudes about not always doing what's popular, while we choose to wear our same standard khakis, loafers, and polo shirt to work every day. These aren't that bad, though. Just saying. We can't act as though spirit days are just for kids and expect kids to embrace our message of risk-taking and engagement. We can't encourage kids to show school spirit while we preach while we preach it from behind our desk. It's our responsibility to be unique, to be creative and inventive. Playing it safe will cause you to drown in a classroom faster than jumping into the deep end ever will. 
Students are daredevils as children. Before they turn five years old, kids are accustomed to falling down and stumbling before getting back up and trying again as they learn to walk and talk. They're used to, to failing and rising again. Then they enter school and we tell them to keep taking chances while we show them a life of playing it safe. Administrators ask teachers to conform to a script when they're being evaluated and begin to believe that this is what effective teaching is all about. We ask teachers to follow pacing guides and wag our finger in disapproval when every teacher in our department is not on the same page on the same day. We tell our teachers they need to differentiate for students, yet we stand in front of our staff meeting and read from a PowerPoint for an hour. We want different. We have to be different. This does not mean we all need to dress up in funny costumes to help teach thematic lessons. This does not mean that we as leaders begin to go against the norm and then require every teacher to do the same. If we want individualism and creativity, we have to encourage it, model it, and be willing to make a fool of ourselves doing what nobody else would ever be willing to do. When you're willing to make a fool of yourself and try something new with regularity, you give permission for those who follow you to do it too, whether they're peers or students. Coupled with the ability to reflect, creativity takes teaching to a new level. Be you, the real you, and embrace it for everyone to see. Make yourself vulnerable, as vulnerability is a requirement for trust. The best teachers are extremely mature with childlike personalities. Maturity is a choice, not a process. Choose to be mature enough to act like a fool from time to time. Your school culture and climate will thank you. Teachers are not commodities. They are destiny shapers. Be Who You Needed When You Were Younger by Julie Stewart, a special education teacher from Florida. Would I like to be a student in my classroom? Would I be engaged and eager to learn new things? Would I be willing to tell everyone about what happened in class that day? Teachers have a monstrous workload, but often we're missing an opportunity to make a meaningful, long-lasting impact on our students by showing them just how enjoyable life with them can be. Thinking of our own learning experiences, it's sometimes difficult to pinpoint one teacher or classroom activity that really made a difference. Teachers have the enormous responsibility of reaching and teaching every student while making lessons and activities relevant and fun. Those two ideas aren't mutually exclusive. It's fundamental to have a strong classroom management plan, but equally important for students to see their teachers laugh and play. Ideally, we should connect with each student on a deeper level than just surface classroom banter. I've taught second grade and college courses, and every grade and subject in between for the past 15 years. In my own classrooms, I found that at times I let my guard down. I belly laughed and I made a fool of myself where, they, where these experiences and lessons have brought students along with me. Students that felt supported and understood came to class and got pumped up for the remainder of their day. Students that had reputations for being not so nice were able to come to my room to be themselves. Respect is of utmost importance, and I both demanded and delivered it. If you can't enjoy what you do for eight hours a day, why would you expect children to? Ideally, we want students to revel in their school experience. We spend more time with these young adults than we do with our own families. It makes sense that we should be ourselves when working with them. It's okay to be messy, to laugh, to joke, and stay current with pop culture. Students need to see their teachers as someone they can confide in, ask advice from, and listen to. Messes can be cleaned, but the memories and conversations will remain. My why is and always will be, kids need me. There may never be another adult in their life that laughs with them, connects with them, or talks with them. Teachers have the responsibility and the opportunity to truly connect with students every day. It's okay to embrace your inner child to make that happen. Make jokes, dance, smile. Ask them the important questions. Just be with them.
bold next steps. One, challenge yourself to put your phone down when you get home from work and to leave your computer powered down tonight. Two, look through the next unit of study you'll be presenting to your students and identify a character you can dress up as to help make it memorable for them. Can you be Tangram Man, Rosie the Riveter, the anti-bullying bulldog, the Mater D helping to serve students at the periodic table? For bonus points, don't tell anyone about it until you do it and then fully embrace their your crazy looks. Three, assign your students or staff homework tonight that requires them to just sit and talk. Help them grow closer and stronger by growing as people. That concludes this episode of Lasting Learning. Want to learn more? Contact me at schmidto.net. Want to read more or listen to more of this audio book? Just come on back. More Bold Humility will be coming soon.